Hey there, you're listening to Ghost Notes, the podcast where we talk about music inside and out. My name is Noah, you might know me as Polyphonic. And I'm Corey, and you probably know me as Twelve Tone. And today we're going to be talking about music as identity. I think this this was your suggestion, but uh, something along the lines of like how people like attach to music as a way of expressing their identity. Was that sort of what yeah. you were thinking? Yeah, so I kind of want to talk about the ways that people attach to music, maybe kind of celebrate some of the ways that that's a really incredible thing that music can do. But I also kind of want to get into the issues that can arise from people attaching too much of their identity to music. I I mean, it's a pretty broad topic, but this is Ghost Notes, so we'll see where this goes. No, we will cover this exhaustively. (laughs) Yeah. At the end of this hour or so, you will know everything there is to know about this, and there will be no point thinking about it further. Yes, absolutely. This is comprehensive. Yep. In... Typical Ghost Notes fashion. So on that, I I mean, I think one of the kind of places to start with this is kind of just, for me, I was thinking at least talking about my own personal experience of kind of the ways that music has helped me orient myself in my identity. And I feel like for a lot of people, this is something that happens in teenagehood and kind of into your early 20s, where I think that music, that's a time where everyone is trying to figure out who they are and trying to assert themselves as an individual. And I think that music provides an incredible, in, in a way that like, There are other art forms that are used for that, but I don't think, you know, say film, you know, people can attach kind of to pre-made identities in quite the same way as music because like essentially like we've talked about before, like a genre is kind of an identity, right? Like a genre is a collection of aesthetic, cultural, you know, fashion values, And a lot of the time, I think, especially when you look at high schools, you'll find a lot of kids kind of identifying themselves by the music they listen to, or at least that being a huge aspect of it. Yeah, I mean, I would say that a genre specifically, it's a cultural identity. It's not Mm -hmm. so much a personal identity, but that's something that you can find your own personal identity within. But like, I mean, speaking to my experience, certainly, like I think, like you said, early teenage years... Again, I don't want to speak for everyone, but I think in general, at least in a lot of American culture, that's probably around the time where you're really starting to develop your own musical tastes. Yeah. As opposed to just receiving musical tastes from the people around you. That's certainly where like I really started to get into music that my parents didn't like, not as like a rebellious thing, although for many people it is. But for me, it was just I was finding things that spoke to me that that I hadn't gotten from them. And that for me, a lot of that was metal and... I think that, I mean, no, you've you've seen what I look like, and yes. some <laughs> listeners to this may have seen what I look like. I look in many ways like you would expect someone who grew up listening to a lot of metal to look. Yeah. Long hair, big beard, constantly angry. Actually, that's one of the one of the really interesting things about metal as a community and as an identity to me is that like when you hang out with actual metalheads, they're just, they're some of the chillest people I've ever met. Like, yeah, yeah. It's famously so. Metalheads are kind of, the metalhead identity yeah. is very interesting because, yeah, they're famously very friendly people. Yeah, you have this image, this identity that you put forth of like anger and like brutality, you know, all of that. And like, in many cases, like this almost satanic idea, uh, but like in actual conversation like these these they're just super chill most and, and you know not every branch of every metal fandom i have certainly met some metalheads who are just way too intense all the time but 
I think that it sort of, I, I guess, speaks to that divide I was drawing between cultural identity and personal identity, because I think the cultural identity of metal is very focused on those like more intense yeah. and often like, I'm going to use the word brutal a lot because metalheads like saying the word it's brutal. It's a great word. But, <laughs> but yeah, you, you have those, those that image of brutality and like anger and intensity that is very intrinsic to the metal cultural identity, but isn't really reflected in a lot of metalheads' personal identities. Yeah, well, I think it's interesting because I think that the metal identity... I think one of the things that's interesting to me about it is that like a lot of these kind of visual cultural aesthetics and kind of countercultural, you know, concepts. Yeah. A lot of them are, I think, expressions of I think a lot of metalheads feel for one reason or another as though they don't fit within, you know, the bounds of quote unquote normal society. And I think that that's something that is reflected in this sort of in the kind of brutality of metal aesthetics. It is this kind of rejection of the, you know, button down societal norms that a lot of metalheads feel just to have don't fit them. Right. Yeah. It's sort of an almost over the top performance aspect in order to create a communal space. And that I think even outside of metal, if we want to just talk about like music genres in general as cultural objects, a lot of that is about creating communal space. A lot of that is about being able to find other people who you think you will probably get along with and who you think you have similar experiences with. And a lot of that is reflected by finding music that reflects your experiences that you can relate to because presumably other people who can also relate to that music can then relate to you. Yes. Yeah. And I think that's a that's a big thing for a lot of people, myself included, is like one of the big aspects of your identity is the people you hang out with. It's the people you yeah. love. It is it's your friends. Right. And I think yeah. for a lot of people, your friends, your podcast co-hosts, you know. Yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I, I think for a lot of people, music provides a bonding point for friendship, because also I know for a lot of people that, you know, aren't as great at making friends or have difficulties, you know, reaching out or talking to people or stuff like that. Music is this nice common ground for you to talk about where you can just, you know, start a conversation by, you know, like, I feel like half of my conversations with my friends in high school were like, you know, top 10 guitarists or, you know, yeah. th that sort of thing. And I think that that's a place where music gives a lot of kind of opens the door to finding your identity is through kind of debating your personal kind of thoughts and opinions on music and finding the differences within people within that community and stuff like that. You kind yeah. of end up feeling out who you are a little bit. Yeah, no, I think, I mean, especially... And I, I don't want to get too much like Devo psych here because like that's not my background. But I, like I do think a lot of finding your own personal identity is an act of not necessarily conflict, but opposition. Yeah, it's finding the places where there is an expectation on you, either because of basic cultural uh, norms or because of the people you're interacting with and finding the places where you push back. Yes. And that, I think, helps draw the lines around who you are. And on that, too, in particular, one area that that intersects a lot with musical identity is 
uh, politics. I think a lot of people get not if if not like entirely, you know, but like get a significant portion of their political identity they find and discover through music. That's something that I know for me. And again, kind of adjacent to metal, like I think a lot of people I mean, there's a lot of crossover between metal and punk. And I think a lot of people that attach to the kind of rejection of societal norms but want something that is a little more kind of overtly political, gravitate to punk. And I know I listened to a lot of punk in high school and you you might have, if you've yeah. noticed my, if you've watched my work, noticed that I like talking about the political aspects of music um, <laughs> and where music and politics intersect uh, and like so much of that aspect of my identity and a lot of my actual kind of fundamental political beliefs were the kind of seed for them was planted by listening to, you know, the dead Kennedys, right? Yeah. I mean, I think back, I don't know that I listened to as much sort of overtly political music when I was a teenager. I Like I listened to some Rage Against the Machine, but as we've talked about before, it's easy to miss Rage Against yeah. the Machine's political messaging if you want to. Not that it's hard to find it if you're looking for it, but like, I, I definitely think that, I mean, art in general, like even yes. outside of music, I think art has, the art you consume... And again, it's not as simple as, you know, you consume this political art and therefore your political beliefs reflect that art. Yeah. Right. Like it's it's much more. And I'm not saying you were saying that, but it's just to be clear, it is much more nuanced than that. But like, like, I do think that a lot of my values and, and you know, it, like you said, it's, it's not just music either. Right. Like this is a lot of that has to do with my upbringing, has to do with like, you know, who I interacted with at formative years in my life. And there's plenty of that is from art and plenty of it is from non-art sources. But yeah, I definitely think that, like you were saying, engaging with these ideas and figuring out what they mean to you, especially if you look at something like Rage Against the Machine, where, you know, again, there is a clear intended message with a lot of Rage Against the Machine stuff pretty clearly, but you can sort of figure out how you feel like it applies. Yeah. Whereas again, the the classic example I always use is like System of a Down's prison song. There is one message in prison yeah. song. <laughs> And if you're finding a different message, you're not listening to Prison Song. I think System of a Down actually is a really interesting example in this because System of a Down is a band that I, I listened to a ton of in high school and a lot of my friends listen to a ton of. But it's an example of kind of how it can open this door, but it doesn't necessarily drag you because I definitely have a lot of friends that listen to System of a Down and still do to this day that don't really align with me politically and their whole, they just like System of a Down because they're, yeah. you know, funny and brutal and weird and, you know, their System of a Down. But, but for me, like, I distinctly remember kind of looking into System of a Down and finding out, you know, looking into reading the lyrics of these songs and then trying to figure out the message there. And from that, that kind of opened my door into eventually, you know, reading political theories and, you know, watching more political commentary and that kind of, yeah. So it's not that like, you know, System of a Down grabbed me and dragged me into left-wing politics, but it yeah. is that, I system of a down helped me along my journey to becoming the dirty leftist that I am. <laughs> yeah. And, and I mean, I think that's a lot of to get back to the sort of more broad identity question. I think that that is often going to be the experience, right? There's a lot of bands that I really love that I don't necessarily relate to all yes. that well. And since I'm working on a video about them right now, Daft Punk, right? Like 
I think a lot of Daft Punk stuff is really interesting. I like listening to it. But you're not a robot from space? Well, okay, we have that in common. (laughs) But (laughs) beyond that, it's not really... Liking Daft Punk isn't really a core pillar of my identity. And I sort of feel like, similarly with someone like Taylor Swift, where I I like a lot of Taylor Swift's music. I have very different life experiences from Taylor Swift in a lot of ways that have resulted in me not necessarily identifying with what she's saying in her work, even though I like her work. And so it's, again, I, I just want to sort of draw this distinction to you can like music that, you know, isn't yeah. shaping your identity. Or And again, it maybe is, right? Like I can think about why, what which parts of like 1989 don't line up with my experience because it's a great album. Yeah. And I can look at sort of where where I don't necessarily see myself in those lyrics. And that gives me a better uh, sense of what the myself is that I'm looking for. Well, and I think that's interesting because I also think kind of in that way, I think a lot of people also find and identify themselves through the music that they dislike, right? I, I like, yeah. I know that's something with, it's very common in kind of like rockism and the kind of circle, rockist circles where, you know, people will specifically identify not, you know, or as much as as much a rock fan as they do as someone who doesn't like Top 40, because, you know, to them, Top 40 represents a certain cultural mainstream that they disagree with for whatever reason. In that specific case, a lot of that is often like anti-corporatism specifically. Yes. And which, you know, is is not a bad ideal, right? Like, <laughs> to be clear. Yeah, I mean, I think it's an I think it's an interesting thing. And I think this is where we can we kind of start to get into some of the dangers of people making these things their yeah. identity, because, yeah, it's it's 100 percent not a bad ideal, but it's also kind of arbitrary to be a rock fan and say you're against corporatism because most rock history is just well, as corporate as top 40 pop, right? I mean, did Led Zeppelin sell albums, though? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Often, one of the dangers of this is that because these things get so entwined to identity and because, you know, you define yourselves in this thing, uh, you're, you define yourselves through this art, a lot of the time what can happen is something that is actually just an aesthetic distaste can suddenly take on identity meaning that, you know, it kind of doesn't have to. Like with kind of hating pop music, it's like you can just not like the sound of pop music and it doesn't actually need to be, you know, that it represents something else. By the same measure, like you can just like a song and like we were saying, it doesn't need to represent your identity. But I think it's an interesting thing where people throw so much of their identity into something that then... Everything around music, what they like, what they dislike, their thoughts get tied up into kind of how it relates to their identity. I think a big point here that you're sort of getting at that I I would like to dig a little bit deeper on, if that's all right, is sort of the distinction between an aesthetic and a principle. Yes, I like that. Where, like you're saying, if you look at top 40 pop, it's very principally corporate. And if you look at classic rock, also very principally corporate, but only top 40 pop is aesthetically corporate. Yes. Like that's what they're, that is part of the image of top 40 pop is that it is popular, is that it's shiny, it's polished. Someone like Led Zeppelin, they were, they were trying to sell records, like to be clear. Yeah. 
they wanted to make money and they made quite a bit of money, but, but like both for them and for their label and blah, blah, blah. But that very clearly was not the image they were projecting. And so it's easy to sort of lose track of the actual underlying principle because the aesthetic supports the identity that uh, says that corporatism is bad. And so you're allowed to like Led Zeppelin because they don't feel corporate. Yeah, I think that that's a that's a great way of, you know, describing it and putting it into words. I think that what kind of can spawn out of that is then you're kind of you start doing kind of, you know, like jumping through hoops mentally to justify these things that are kind of aesthetic, right? And jumping through hoops to try to be like, oh, well, no, you know, corporate pop is inherently immoral and people who do it and people who like it are bad people. And that becomes really, really harmful because I, I genuinely, I don't think, I don't think any kind of, significant value judgment on someone can be made by the music that they listen to. I mean, it can tell you about their well, identity, but I can think of counterexamples to that. Okay. But broadly speaking, yeah. I agree with the principle. This is Yeah. If they're listening to like Burzum or something. Yeah. Burzum or like, you know, Nazi skinhead yes, punk. That's true. That's, those are red flags. Those are real red flags. I mean, that you should run away from. I think those are, that's actually, that is an interesting thing to talk about with identity is one of the dangerous things about music and identity is that music, in the same way that music can be used to kind of pipeline people into, you know, a political identity, a social stance, an aesthetic, things like that. Like, it can be used to radicalize people in that way. Yeah. And and a lot of the time, like we were talking about with both metal and punk, like, they're both genres that appeal to people that tend to feel on the fringes of society. Bad actors in those groups can channel those people on the fringes and channel those energies into doing great, great harm. Yeah, and I definitely do want to talk about that. But sort of before we do, I want to talk about if this is all right, I want to talk about sort of an underlying thing that leads into that. Totally. Which is just this broader ability for music to create communities in marginalized spaces. Like you see this a lot in like queer musicians creating queer fan bases and making, again, for people who may not feel at home or comfortable around their own families, giving them a space where they can belong and they can exist. And I think that that's a really powerful thing and it can be used for evil, but it can also be used for good in a lot of really effective ways. And it can make a lot of space for people who can't necessarily find space in mainstream society. And it can often lead, I'd say often, but it can also lead to sort of a sense of seeing yourself in mainstream society in ways that may not otherwise be possible when musicians from those communities succeed. I was going to say, I think I think like queer music is a great example for that, because like like I think that there is a kind of positive feedback cycle that you can see between someone like Lady Gaga and kind of the mainstreaming of a lot of queer identities through the 2010s, right? Like late yeah. 2000s, early 2010s. And of course, Macklemore. <laughs> yes, naturally. <laughs> And a lot of the time it can also be things like even earlier than that, like a lot of the a lot of the early disco divas were not themselves queer, but they made music that was born out of a queer subculture and they accepted and embraced this subculture. And a lot of them, you know, like Gloria Gaynor or, you know, Donna Summer or people like that became kind of gay icons 
because they were people creating this space for a lot of gay men to express themselves and feel a part of a community and a part of society. Yeah. And I mean, disco is a really, I think, significant genre to talk about in everything, the discussion of music and identity. Well, also that, uh, but specifically in this discussion, because in this discussion. All right. Well, that's been ghost notes, everyone. <laughs> this podcast is canceled forever. <laughs> Historically speaking, even in my lifetime, which started like over a decade after the like the heyday of disco, it feels like one of the most actively hated genres by a lot of like mainstream culture. And a lot of that, you know, and, and, and you know, I, I can understand someone not enjoying that particular style of music, right? Like that that happens with any style. But it feels like a real weird coincidence that this like hallmark of like, oh, this is the most terrible genre of music that has ever happened. And we're going to still be talking about it decades later, how much we hate it was a style that is intrinsically tied to black gay men. Yeah. Yeah. That's actually something that I'm currently right now, literally before we started recording this podcast, I'm currently working on a big half hour retrospective on the queer history of disco. And it's something yeah. where it's also really interesting in identity because a weird thing happened with disco identity, where it was the space of a lot of queer Latino black communities but then it became mainstream and it became like it kind of became so such a phenomenon in the mainstream that this new identity, uh, the kind of disco person, you know, like the typical, yeah. you know, disco stew in The Simpsons. The John Travolta yeah, type. Yeah. yeah. Emerges out of that and becomes this new identity that is kind of stripped and removed from the roots of like a lot of the aspects of disco. I talk about this in my video, like very kind of intrinsically linked to like the the general kind of like hedonism of disco. A lot of that has to do with the fact that being hedonistic as someone who is straight is a different statement than being hedonistic as someone who is queer in a homophobic yeah. world. In in a perfect world, there's no difference in the statements. Oh, yeah. But but, but there's a shift in the identity that happens there. And I think that that's something Thing that happens a lot with marginalized communities and marginalized art where, you know, it's similarly happens with hip hop, you know, even even rock and roll went through a big identity shift. Yeah, jazz. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, yeah, no, I think that that is, like you said, a big thing that happens with because because, again, it's sort of this distinction between a cultural identity and a personal identity. And you have all of these people in this early underground movement that are shaping the cultural identity. But then once you know mainstream culture comes in and takes it it's very easy to sort of erase those stories and make it so that the people who built this like genre this style this sound can't find themselves in it anymore yeah yeah and and i think that that's something that becomes like it it's it's really dangerous because it ends up kind of erasing and removing a venue that a lot of these people had for, you know, community organization and, you know, yeah. find yeah, finding self-worth and and often again like you know, political action and stuff like that as well. Like like real kind of tangible impacts on people's lives. A lot of the time in the 90s, hip hop was an outlet for a lot of poor black communities, you know, find meaning in a world that was really, really horrible to them. And then when it becomes this thing that, you know, you've got people who have no 
actual understanding of, you know, inner city gang life in Compton, you know, doing this performative gangster rap, that's suddenly an outlet that has that for the, you know, for these young black kids living in this hyper marginalized situation that that outlet suddenly they don't have it anymore right or it maybe they still have it but it's changed i always think of the uh the post malone quote that he did an interview where he was saying you know if you're looking for deep emotions don't listen to hip-hop basically anyone who knows anything about hip-hop was like dude what the yeah are you talking yeah that's ridiculous as one of the biggest hip-hop artists in the world right now. Like, yeah. Biggest by sales numbers, yes. not necessarily by impact or influence, but like huge financially a superstar of the hip-hop industry right now. Just being like, you know what? We we don't really tell emotional stories. And it's like, um, <laughs> have you listened to any what? hip-hop? <laughs> yeah, well, I think the other thing like that, what happens when you get this kind of like commercialization, this kind of like popularity of these identities is they become I, I think it's I think it's a weird thing because I think there's a degree to which it's just part of the natural cycle of things. These things happen. Right. Yeah. And a lot of the time, like, you know, for me, who punk meant a lot to me in high school and I related to a lot of punk and punk is, you know, what first started me on, you know, activism and going to protests and stuff like that. The way I got into punk was with corporate pop punk, right? Like my my yeah. door into punk was Blink-182 and Sum 41 and, you know, Avril Lavigne, yeah. right? Like, so there is there is still, you know, benefits to, you know, these things opening up. Helps you understand how the political situation is complicated. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely complicated when it comes to sort of the commercialization of things. Because again, like, I say again, I'm not sure I said this yet this episode, but uh, capitalism, you (laughs) know, it's just if you make something that's really good and you keep making it, uh, eventually, hopefully it becomes mainstream. And when it becomes mainstream, people realize they can make money off of it and then they try and sand off the edges so that they can make more money off of it. Those edges that they're sanding off are often the parts of it that reflect the marginalized communities that made it. Yeah. And that's, you know, in one sense, kind of, you know, the quote unquote natural process. It's the way these things go. But on the other hand, it doesn't have to be the way these things go. And that doesn't make it a good way for things to go, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So to be clear, neither Noah nor I is endorsing that process. We're just acknowledging that it does. Yes, I, yeah, that's that's a good thing to clarify i really don't endorse that process and i agree like there there are worlds where that doesn't happen and they're better worlds you know um under our current society that is how these things operate and i don't want to like come across as saying like oh but the good part of this is because yeah it's a bad process but like when we talk about how so much good art comes from marginalized communities i think that is a large part of it because when you keep losing the spaces you're building, you have to keep building new spaces and you have to keep building new and innovative ideas that allow you to continue making something that actually belongs to you. I think that that's not a small part of why so much of the great art, like modern society, and especially like the great music comes from communities of color, queer communities and stuff like that. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I, I again, like I think that that ties very closely into everything we've been saying about identity, right? Is yeah. It comes from yeah. a space of, you know, 
people whose identities are not basically like people whose identities are discouraged for one way or another in yeah. mainstream society creating venues to express their identity and to create their identity yeah and and again it, i'm not trying to make the argument that this is like the good side of the corporatization and whitewashing of art it's more a testament to the strength and creativity of these communities yeah Agreed. So praising them, not saying like, well, at least we get good art out of it. It's just like, you know, to be clear on that point. Did you have uh, more thoughts? Do you want to go back to kind of where we were talking about radicalizing and introducing people to harmful ideas through and harmful identities through music? Yeah, we can circle back to that because that's sort of I think that's why I wanted to cover this first is that, you know, you see a lot of that is this exact same dynamic of like, exactly, yeah. you know, people feeling like they've been pushed to the sides of society, whether again, in a lot of cases, they largely haven't. Yeah. Uh, there's whole, you know, breakdowns of this by people who are much smarter than me and much more knowledgeable about this sort of thing. So I'm going to leave the details of a lot of this alone. But I think that, you know, you, you have these uh, people like, you know, for instance, like white male teenagers who are sort of feel because they're getting cultural messages that tell them that they're being pushed to the fringes of society. Because of that, they absorb that. And, you know, this this art comes along that claims to speak to that specific kind of marginalization. And then that opens the door to a lot of not so great messaging that, you know, because they're already feeling a little, they're feeling like maybe they're not as successful as they should be. Maybe they've been, you know, looked over for opportunities they should have got. Maybe they're going to, they're struggling, they're going through things and, you know, because teenagers struggle with yes. things. That's what being a teenager, that's also what being an adult is. That's what being yeah, a human is. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. But like, especially like going in your teenage years when you're not used to that yet, you start going through some really, really tough stuff. And like, and to be clear, like, I'm sympathetic to that. I remember what that was like. It's a vulnerable time and it makes it, and it's also, again, a time where you're trying to figure out your identity and music is a tool for that. And so finding this music that can speak to your specific struggles. Well, and a lot of the time, like with Nazi punks and stuff like that, that often very much is the express goal, right, is to yeah. target these people and to create these kinds of spaces where like a lot of the time, you know, a lot of these kind of Nazi punk bands or, you know, Nazi metal bands or things like that are specifically seeking out those kinds of kids to try to the, the kinds of kids looking for an identity yeah. and looking for a community to try to lure them in. So it's like it's not like this is yeah. just something that I mean, it, it is it's not a coincidence. Yeah. It's a strategy. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And it's it's scary. Honestly, I think that's something that I think it's very easy and very good to celebrate the ways that people tie identity into the music and the ways that music helps people find identities. And it's a lot nicer to talk about that. But the reality is that it it go it goes both ways and it's it can do yeah. extreme, extreme harm. Yeah. And this, I think, to sort of dial back from the extremely intense yeah. side of the conversation a little bit, but keep in this general area, I think speaks to the sort of the issue of, you know, the issue of creating community in general, which is not to say that creating community is bad, but, you know, when you draw those boundaries, you're creating an in-group and an out-group. Yep. 
And like creating in-groups is great. I love creating in-groups. In-groups are awesome. Creating out-groups, though, yeah. <laughs> can be dangerous, like in a lot of ways. And so, and it's, and like, I mean, people just have a tendency to do this, to sort of factionalize. We do it very easily. Like you create any sort of like team challenge and immediately the teams are at each other's throats because, you know, like, oh, I'm on the red team or whatever. Yeah. Like, it's very easy to convince people that like, these are the people you're working with. These are the people you're working against. You know, and again, that that isn't even necessarily malicious. Like we talk about, you know, the way like white supremacists will use that. And yeah, that's very malicious. But you look at something like, you know, classic rock fans hating on top 40 pop. And that's the exact, I mean, not the exact same phenomenon, but that's a related phenomenon of just forming an out group as a juxtaposition to your in group and then trying to justify after that why that out group belongs on the outside. Well, and and one of the things that can happen with that is like to bring it back to disco like a lot of what happened with the kind of violent backlash against disco was that a lot of it was started because rock radio stations were converting to disco stations because disco was more popular when it became an attack on rock fans identities that's when yeah the disco really became an out, right? It was really, yeah. oh, it, it wasn't, oh, all of these people like disco. It's these disco people are trying to replace us. And I mean, obviously the yeah. replacement rhetoric is, that is, there's a lot of baggage yeah, there. There's, yeah, we uh, we don't have to unpack all yeah. of that, but just be aware that we know there's baggage. Yes, exactly. This actually reminds me recently, I was listening to a local radio station that often plays fairly obscure stuff, but like after they played a song, like the DJ came on and it was like, where are you going to hear that? Where else are you going to hear that song on the radio? No one plays stuff like that. It was Sheena is a punk rocker by the Ramones. <laughs> like <laughs> that was the song he was talking about that no one, no one plays anymore. It's just like, it's, it's the Ramones, dude. People still play the Ramones. Yeah. But it's just like, it, makes it so that, you know, there's this sort of adversarial aspect and that encourages you to pick a side. And if you're listening to that station, you're probably already on their side. Yeah. So that sort of encourages you to be more invested in what they're doing. My favorite kind of example of these kind of arbitrary identity wars in music is mods versus rockers, (laughs) which is like for, so for those who don't know in the like late 50s through to the 60s there were two communities of mods and rockers who i genuinely to this day don't really know the difference between the two other than rockers <laughs> wore leather jackets and mods drove on scooters they were so tied up in basically just like music that we all today look back on and consider the same genre the same movement you know early rock and roll and r&b and there were allegedly the historicity of these actual showdowns is a little suspect but allegedly like street fights between these people over their kind of and it wasn't just a musical identity but it was centered around music yeah for things that today we consider the same genre and the same movement like it's very strange but it's like you said, like there's you create the out group when when I am a rocker. Oh, who's my out group? Mods are my out group. Yeah. And to, to riff on that a little bit, there's no such thing as just a musical identity. Yes. Like this is 
this is part of I think part of the point is that like music is a part of a larger self conception and a larger cultural conception. And so like you you when you look again like when I say I'm a metalhead, there are some things that you can imagine about the way I look that are probably correct. You can probably guess what color shirt I'm wearing right now. Like if you're listening to this, feel free to take a guess. I'll pause for a moment. Okay, it's black. It's a black shirt. But like you can probably work that out just from knowing because again, fashion is a part of it and like a lot of and a lot of there's a lot of associations with other kinds of art too. Like, you know, metal is deeply associated with horror in film. Like I'm not a huge fan of horror films, but like a lot of stuff that there's a lot of crossover there. One of my favorite metal artists, Rob Zombie, is also a horror film director. Yeah, I I mean I think to pull in we're kind of looking at the broader stuff and I think a lot of this stuff can inform when you pull in, I think what happens a lot of the time on an individual level when people get too much of their identity tied up in music or just any broad kind of art in general is you see what happens on like and I mean I want to give a trigger warning to people because unfortunately I'm going to talk about Twitter and that's a horrible place that nobody should ever have to hear about but you (laughs) see these kinds of things happen on Twitter and online spaces have always been places for it where when you get this community that starts to define itself by these things you start to get these purity wars within the community right where something that again, both metal and punk have had a lot of throughout the years is, and it's the most obnoxious thing is I'm more metal than you. You know, I'm more like, and a lot of extreme metal. Yeah, like the name five albums thing. Yeah, yes, yes. You know, it was like, oh, you're a fan of this band? Name five of their albums. Yeah, I think a lot of that is very much tied into identity because the where that comes from is someone. Yeah associating with this identity that means a lot to them for very valid reasons and should mean a lot and them feeling like somebody else being able to latch onto this identity which is them is a threat to their identity it could lead to the disillusion of their identity which like as we talked about there are situations where that can happen and uh, in a lot of circles that can happen but i don't think that gatekeeping is the answer to that yeah it's sort of because again, like a lot of things, it cuts both ways, right? Because we we look at you know what, what happened to disco, or what's what's happened in a lot of ways to hip hop and jazz and all of these and rock, certainly where you know the majority group just decided they were in the in group now, and yeah, they had the power, so they were the in group, and they could decide where the lines were. But like specifically to sort of the name five albums style thing or that sort of gatekeeping, I think a lot of that is also just sort of retroactively defending the utility of your own behavior, if that makes sense. Like, I think if I love Rob Zombie and I have listened to all of his albums, and I've like memorized like all of the songs. I know all of this. Like, I know so much about Rob Zombie and someone else comes along and they're just like, oh, I'm a huge Rob Zombie fan, Dragula. And then that's the end of that. It risks implying that like, you know, all of that extra work I did to really deeply appreciate this artist or this genre or whatever wasn't pointful yeah right like if if you can be just as much of a fan as i am having listened to one song when i've listened to all of the albums like hundreds of times potentially i i haven't listened to all of his albums hundreds of times to be clear but like only the good ones well yeah but to be fair not all of them are good i love you rob zombie come on my podcast (laughs) no you're not allowed (laughs) rob zombie (laughs) no I want to ask you questions about Jesus Frankenstein, Rob Zombie, please come on my podcast. You see that a lot with especially like 
bands that have been around for a long time and that have like really deep lore, like like Black Sabbath or something, where you know someone who knows all of the different lineups of Black Sabbath and who has listened to all of the albums and has like a lot of opinions about everything and has like had all of these these conversations, the sorts of conversations that, you know, you and I love having about these sorts of things, but, you know, has really deeply invested themselves in this. I I think there's a sense at which, you know, someone coming along and being like, oh, I listened to Paranoid. It was pretty good. I'm a huge Black Sabbath fan. Feels like kind of a threat. Yeah. Not, I'm not saying that that's it should. I'm not saying that that's right, but I like I'm saying that's sort of the instinct to sort of hear that and want to defend the fact that you have put in a lot more work and that that work had a purpose, which it did. To be clear, it, that work if if that work was meaningful to you, then it had a purpose, whether or not this other person is also a Black Sabbath fan. But I think that there's sort of that knee jerk instinctive reaction of being like, oh no, I am a bigger Rob. Uh, I don't know why I switched back to Rob Zombie, yeah. there, but you know, a bigger fan of whatever the artist or whatever the genre is, because you've done the work. Yeah, well, and I think the danger in that is in shutting out people that maybe very well will do the work, you know, and maybe they won't. And it's something that I think a lot of people, I think it's a very kind of, it comes from a fragility and a sensitivity that people from the out group are invading your space, right? Which in reality, like if you... If you're in an in-group, especially around something relatively arbitrary like music, like I want as many people as, you know, possible to come be giant Bob Dylan nerds. I will never, but... That's that's harsh, but fair. <laughs> it's, this is where I draw the line. It's an acquired now. taste. <laughs> I think a lot of that stuff is tied to the way that we conceptualize the self through how this stuff speaks to us. And these things become very kind of special and personal. Yeah. And and like, and again, we we do keep coming back to this, but I think it's important to emphasize here is that this is, there are sort of different ways in which someone joining the in-group can be dangerous, right? Like there, there are ways that I think you and I would agree are not real threats. These are things like, you know, like, like I said, like people coming in who just haven't done all the listening yet. And that's, I would say almost unilaterally across the board, give them space to do that, help them, welcome them, show them the things they need to listen to, help them on that journey if you can. But as we talked about earlier, there's also this risk of like new people who aren't actually invested in the community becoming a sort of sanitizing force and a sort of whitewashing force and erasing a lot of, especially for these, these genres, these communities that build up around sort of marginalized groups and marginalized identities you do have this risk of people just coming in and taking it and making it theirs. And this thing that is meaningful to you sort of goes away because it's not the most profitable way to use this particular art form. And that is, I think, a thing that is worth defending against and being, being aware of and being cautious of. And especially in those sorts, like I know that it, like I know in hip hop, this was a thing for quite a while and uh, still is, but like of people who are like, old school hip hop heads trying to make sure that what happened with mainstream hip hop stayed true to what they had built. I think uh, FD Signifier has a great video about this. His video on Drake goes into a lot of detail on this. I would recommend that way more than anything I could tell you. <laughs> I'd recommend anything FD does more than anything we could tell you. Oh yeah, you. <laughs> no, absolutely. Uh, but yeah, if, if you want to sort of know more about that from someone who is, is much more aware of and invested in hip hop culture than I am, I would really recommend FD Signifier's Drake video. But like yeah, that that sort of thing I think is to an extent an important safeguard. Yeah. To protect these 
styles and these communities against the natural encroachment we talked about of, you know, capital. Yeah, I agree with that. There's one more kind of angle to the dangers of identity that uh, of getting identity too tied up into music that I wanted to talk about. It's the danger of identity, you know, having a sense of self is... Bit of a shift, yeah. Don't have an identity. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of the time, musicians abuse their power, right? Mm -hmm. Kind of famously so. You see a lot of these, especially more and more in the post-Me Too era, you hear about musicians with sexual abuse, abuses of power, things like that. And I think that one of the real, real dangers in getting people's, in people's identities getting so tied up into these artists is that this person suddenly feels like a reflection of you an aspect yeah. of you and that's how i think a lot of the time you get people rushing to defend these abusers when allegations come out you know or even people like in like around artists not calling this stuff out when they see it you know it people not yeah. challenging artists and people defending behavior of artists i think a lot of that is tied to the way that music links to people's identity and is kind of enabled by people not wanting to let go of of that you know like for me like it was yeah. very very difficult for me to come to terms with you know like zeppelin and bowie and those sorts of the the legacy of those because of how especially bowie i think is a is, is a difficult one because so much of bowie is tied up his art is very much about identity it reflects identity it helps a lot of queer people find identity so to discover that that artist has these kind of you know, demons or skeletons in the closet. It's a, uh, I think it can be very difficult. And I think a lot of people, that's where a lot of the rush to defend abusers can come from. That, and it's also part of where they get the power to do these things in yes. the first place. Like if you yes. talk about like Jimmy Page or you talk about David Bowie, like the people they were abusing were their fans. As where uh, recording this, this is relatively recently after the Win Butler news and Arcade Fire stuff. And yeah. that's another more modern uh, thing where they are fans. And again, they are fans for Arcade Fire are another one of these bands that mean a lot to people's identities because they they talk a lot about coming of age and finding identity. And right. Yeah. And, and that's I think the core issue here for me is sort of the distinction between finding your identity in music and letting music become your identity. Yes. And that that's a very, and it, it's a really hard line to walk, right? Like that's, I'm not, I have no judgment for anyone who has ever had trouble with that. Like this is not, like I've, yeah, we, we've all been there. And I certainly still am to an extent that I am almost certainly not fully aware of. A lot of that is, you know, viewing David Bowie as an extension of your identity rather than viewing David Bowie's work. Yes. And rather than viewing the things that, and again, this, this comes back to a lot of, if I'm going to get like back on my bolt about art as experience, it's not even David Bowie's work that's meaningful to you. It's your experience of David Bowie's work and you yeah. made that. And so again, there are a lot of beautiful ways in which art can and does help you shape your identity. But I think that a lot of where things can go wrong on that. And this ties back to a lot of the stuff we were talking about with like Nazi punks and everything too, is not losing track of your own agency in that process. Yeah. Not 
letting your identity be dictated to you. And also, and, and this ties, I guess, another thing that sort of I wanted to talk about is like sort of relatedly just in general, the concept of like really rabid fan bases. Like I think yeah. these days, a lot of people listening would recognize the term Stan as, you know, but like that, that sort of thing where. Well, I mean, even like, like the term Stan is, it's an yeah. interesting term. Cause like, yeah, it's based on, if you look at the music video for Stan and what Stan is about. Or just listen to the lyrics. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's literally about a kind of whole generation of Eminem fans trying to adopt to make their identity Eminem, yeah. right? Like dress like him, act like him, like all of that stuff. Yeah, and and that like I don't know about you, I've like neither of us has the sort of fan base that like you know BTS or Eminem or like Nicki Minaj yeah. or whatever has, but like I have certainly in my capacity as a public figure gone to a significant extent to avoid encouraging my audience to identify as a community around me. Yeah. Like this is this is a thing that like very early on I was like joking with some friends about like, you know, like what would be the name for 12 tone fans as a group. And you see these in like online circles. But I think that that, again, promotes this in-group out-group thing in a way that like. For the record, the name would be the Serialists. <laughs> I mean, this we, we just had tone heads. So that's that's way better. <laughs> but um, but no, it's those sorts of things where like I don't. I don't want to create a space where like there's a divide between me and someone like Polyphonic or someone like Adam Neely or yeah. whatever, where there you have to have, you know, you, you don't want to have like, you know, the tone heads fighting the Beato bros or whatever. <laughs> and like, these are my colleagues and I want to leave that space. And I think that that's a thing. Like, I, I don't think in a lot of cases, I mean, it depends on the artist. Like a lot of artists don't actively encourage that sort of thing, but a lot of artists do. And it's something that isn't necessarily meant in a bad way. And it's not even necessarily something that is bad. Like, I mean, from what I've yeah. heard, and this is something I have no personal experience with, but from what I've heard, a lot of people in the Juggalo community attach a lot of value to that and have found a lot of yeah. camaraderie and community and support within the Juggalo community. And I mean, again, I'm not there. That's not a band that I listen to a lot, but like I, I get it and I respect it. But I, I think that it's it can be again, it, it's sort of remembering your own agency in these sorts of things, remembering that you are not just a part of whatever the group is, be it, you know, the Juggalos or, you know, Slipknot's Maggots or the BTS Army or whatever they are. But you are also you. The people who love polyphonic, as I call them, yeah. the polyamorists. <laughs> Well, thanks for listening to Ghost Notes. This podcast is canceled forever. I think that's a really astute point. Like, it, it's interesting yeah. because I think where I'm at with music as my identity, and obviously we are, are also in a particular weird place with music as our, our identity because it's our livelihood. Yeah, music as and a whole also, is our identity in a lot of ways. Yeah, I think where where I'm at is with a lot of the stuff is it's music I think music and art in general is very useful for helping you find out who you are. But I think once you've found out who you are... Just stop listening you, to music. Exactly. Well, I, I think there's a, there is a degree of detachment that needs to happen that's like, oh, this stuff made yeah. me who I am, but who yeah. I am is who I am. Who I am is not this stuff. Yeah, no, I, like I, I've mentioned before, like... 
it would be a lie for me to pretend that Marilyn Manson didn't play a significant role in shaping who I am. I also have a lot of qualms with admitting that in public because of who Marilyn Manson has proven himself to be. And also really who he was at the time. Like that's not, that's on me in a lot of ways, but like, you know, that, that sort of, I, I can take that step back and I think it's important to take that step back and look at this artist and be like, this artist was important to me. And, you know, in that particular case, like I really don't listen to Marilyn Manson anymore. Like I think a lot of that doesn't really work for me anymore, partly because I can't view it with the same level of detachment that I could when I was a teenager. And I didn't know as much about, you know, who he was as a person. And I I can't view it as sort of an artistic statement from, you know, like I look at like Rob Zombie and Rob Zombie, whenever I see him in interviews, whenever he's doing anything, he just seems like a chill dude. Yeah. But then he goes and makes just really, again, we were talking like metalheads are just for the most part, just chill. They're just chill. That has always seemed like Rob Zombie's thing and that I I can really attach to. But, you know, I look at someone like Marilyn Manson and I, I really can't separate what I know about like, but again, that, that's not even necessary, right? Like, we, we really need to do a full episode at some point about what to do with, you know, great art by terrible people. That's Yeah, I'll, we'll do an episode on that when I know what to do about it, because I have yeah, no idea. Yeah, no, that that's that may not be one of those, you know, definitive ghost notes episodes that yeah. answers all the questions. Yeah. You, unlike normal ghost notes episodes, unlike this one, unlike this one, where I'm pretty sure you, you know, everything there is to know about music and identity by now, but you know, about I, both, both not, not yeah. just the relationship separately, music, yeah. you know, everything about music and everything about identity. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that you're welcome. <laughs> it is something that is something that we should probably explore at some point, but I think yeah. that was one of the reasons why talking about identity was interesting to me because I think that that is something that is very closely tied to identity and the way that people create identity from music. Yeah. And I I mean, I also, uh, this is also on our list of possible things, but I would love to do just a full thing on parasocial relationships with musicians as well, because I think that that's also really important and also really important to understand. And I think that that's, again, a very important component of music as identity is sort of attaching to artists in ways that, you know, I think parasocial relationships, there's a lot of negative connotations. And I think in in many cases, it's harmless. But, you know, in some cases, it's very much not. Like most Ghost Notes things, I think the ultimate message here with kind of music and identity is that it can be very good and it can be very bad. But I think yeah. ultimately, the, the biggest thing to me that's important about this stuff is just like awareness that, you know, yeah. a- awareness that this stuff exists, awareness of the problems with it, awareness of what's fantastic about it and what's special about it. I mean, I think in general... I, I, I don't think we've really got time to get into it, and I don't even know if I would really have answers, but I do think there's something about music that ties closer to people's identity than a lot of other art forms. Not universally, but for yeah. a lot of people, and I don't entirely know why, but I think it's just it's just something that music as an art form does well speaking to personal experiences of the world and helping frame people's personal experiences of the world so i think it's it's tied to that but yeah i think it's something where it's just something to be aware of and think of yeah i mean so so much of the language of music is not language is i think a lot of it is that it is much more a way of communicating emotions and we put stories on top 
stories are concentrated emotions, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, distilled emotions probably is more correct. But anyway, we, we can tell specific stories on top of those broad emotional arcs, but music is more than most art forms playing in the space of those emotional arcs much more directly to sort of yeah. repeat the thing you said, but in a way that makes it sound like it was my idea. So I sound smart. Love it. Uh, I would, I would say that, you know, finding your identity in music and through music, like you said, can be very good or very bad. And the more you pay attention, the more you're aware and the more you're doing that actively, the more in control you are of which of those it is. Yeah. And I would recommend good. If, if you're choosing, I would recommend good over bad, personally. But, you know, live your life. I'm not... Hot take. I'm not the boss of you. Well, on that, I think that that's a great place to leave. I am the boss of you, so... Oh, no. Am I fired? I instruct that you need to go watch that FD signifier Drake video. That's yeah, that's my instruction, video. listeners. And if you want to watch our stuff, you can. By the time this comes out, I will possibly have that video of di- on disco out. So, yeah. you know, that's that's relevant reading. Yeah. yeah. Go watch that if you haven't already. Yeah. All right. Thank you all so much for listening. We'll we'll see you whenever the next episode drops, which is on a regular schedule that I don't know. In a couple weeks, which would be the next guest episode. So probably then. And I'm really excited about that guest. Yeah, we don't know who it is yet, but I'm very excited. (laughs) Exactly. All right. Bye. Bye.